At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Do you ever feel like the world is spinning out of control? Amidst the world's chaos and growing opposition to our faith, economic hardship, and overwhelming challenges, we can find inspiration from the story of Elijah in 1 Kings. Despite facing an angry king, severe drought, massive opposition, and depression, Elijah lived a powerful and impactful life for God. Join us for our series, Elijah, as we learn how the same God Elijah served can use us to live a life of impact for his kingdom. All right, this morning, if you have a Bible or electronic device, I want to encourage you to take it out and turn with me to the book of First Kings. We're going to be in First Kings chapter 18 this morning. And if you see the text on the screen, you can see that we're going through 40 verses today. So someone needs to order some lunch. And uh, I'm just kidding. DoorDash it, whatever. No, I'm just kidding. We're going to go through it. We're, this is one of those narratives of, of the Old Testament where a lot of ground gets covered and a lot of words. And uh, so today we're going to allow the word to speak mostly to us. I'm not going to expound on it in, in, in deep detail, um, but the passage that we're looking at today is deep in meaning. And God is doing something so profound here the same God that's doing profound things in the passages that we're going to look at today is still a God that does profound things today. So the God of 1 Kings chapter 18 is still the same God today who's working for his glory, for our good, and he's working through all the good, all the bad, and all the ugly that's surrounding your life right now. Let us not forget that. This is not just a God that shows up at one time in one way for Elijah, but this is a God that shows up every single day. And he can show up every single day in your life as well. Now, I don't know if you've ever heard the saying, it's too good to be true. Have you ever heard that saying? Well, a lot of times it's true. <laughs> there are a lot of things that make like massive claims that are too good to be true. And the one time that I learned this the most was back in the summer of 1997. Now, that was a long time ago. Some of you weren't even born then. It's like the olden ages for some of you. You're like, 1997, that was so long. For all those of you that are older, you're like, that was just like yesterday. What are you talking about? But way, way, way back in the 20th century, yeah, so, so now the weight of that is like resting on some of you, and you're like, oh my goodness, I'm so old. And that's okay. We're just experienced with wisdom. Anyways, the summer of 97, I had an opportunity to serve as a, a missionary in Europe. And so we traveled through Europe sharing the gospel and uh, doing a lot of good things. And we were uh, wrapping up our trip and spending uh, the last week in Prague. And um, I really love the city of Prague. And, and uh, we had the opportunity to go through one of the open markets. And we're trying to grab some last-minute souvenirs because we're getting ready to go on a plane to come back home. And uh, we're going through this open-air market, and I see this vendor who's got Calvin Klein polos on sale. I'm like, dude, are you serious? And I got a little closer, and I'm like, oh, Calvin Klein polos. And I'm, I asked the guy, he's like, yeah, you, three of them for like 20 American dollars. I'm like, are you kidding me? 
three polos that say Calvin Klein with a little CK on them. I'm like, dude, I'm so in. So I got a blue one, I got a green one, and I got a yellow one. And I was so proud. I, I came home and I was showing everyone that I, I got this great deal on these, these wonderful polos that are, you know, name, brand, designer polos. I was super excited about it. And I wore them. And I was like, yeah, look at my, look at my polo. And then it came time to wash them. I threw those dudes in the washing machine, and the dye from those went all over the, all of my clothes. So I had a little like everything was tie dyed. It was crazy. It was it was cool. A little bit of yellow, a little bit of blue, a little bit of green on all of my clothes. And I go to pull the polos out, and they basically disintegrated like in my hands. Too good to be true. Right? Like what I thought was a value, what I thought was a really, really good deal was really just a dupe. I got duped. But you know what? I'm so thankful for the lesson that I learned because even though these shirts were counterfeit, they were fake, I only lost 20 bucks. Right? That's the, that's the silver lining. It was only 20 bucks. Now, 20 bucks back then was a lot, but it's not a lot, a lot that it would, you know, totally change the course of my life. But what happens, because it's easy for us to be duped, right? It's easy for us to believe in fake things or counterfeit things. And sometimes it really doesn't, the value of it, it's not really that important. But sometimes our eternity hangs in the balance. Especially as it relates to those that are finding or placing their faith in false gods, or placing their, their trust or their hope into something other than God himself. Today, as we are going to look at this passage, we look at 1 Kings chapter 18. We're going to see the impact of a devoted life to idols. How it all pans out. How, what it looks like and the dangers that are there in giving your life over to idols. So today we're continuing our series as we are looking at Elijah, a man like us. Remember, we've been looking at Elijah. Elijah is one of, one of these prophets that have been called by God that stands in the face of kings who, who sees God move in mighty, mighty ways. And sometimes we think, I can never be like an Elijah. That God, God's call on Elijah's life was so super special that he was some super human man that God used. And I want you to understand that Elijah was just a man. A man that trusted God in his word and obeyed God. And God used him to do some amazing things. Last week we saw how Elijah was obedient to follow God. God comes to Elijah and says, hey, Elijah, I, I need you to go to King Ahab and tell him this message because King Ahab has done evil in the sight of the Lord and he needs to know that I'm God. And so Ahab goes to the king and he says, hey, God has told me to tell you that a famine, a drought is coming in the land. And that sets Ahab on edge, makes him angry. And so he, we, we find in the text today that he seek, had been seeking from that moment to try and kill Elijah. But Elijah, by the leading of God, left the town, goes by this brook, this babbling brook, and God takes care of him, ministers to him by feeding him through the ravens. And then that, that brook dries up because there's a drought in the land, and so God sends him to a widow. 
And through God's word and through God's promises, God takes care of Elijah in the middle of the drought and also provides food for this woman and her family. And then we also saw how the, the, the young boy of this widow, he passes away. And God's power shows up again, and that boy is raised from the dead. And now we pick up now, today, and we see that three years have passed. The drought has been going on for three years, no rain, and it's a desperate situation. And it's a desperate situation because God's trying to get King Ahab's attention. Today, what we're going to see, we're going to see today what God thinks about idols. We're going to see how his, his character, as we saw last week, his character of protection and his character of provision just being unfolded. Today, we're going to see how he cares about his own name. And we're going to see the dangers of living with idols. So the first thing we're going to see as we come to our text today is that idols corrupt our lives. Look with me in 1 Kings chapter 18, beginning in verse 1. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria, and Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly, and when Jezebel cut off the prophets of, of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by the fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. And Ahab said to Obadiah, Go through the land to all the springs of water and to all the valleys. Perhaps we might find some grass and save the horses and mules alive and not lose some of the animals. So they divided the land between them to pass through. Ahab went in one direction by himself, and Obadiah went in another direction by himself. And as Obadiah was on his way, behold, Elijah met him. And Obadiah recognized him and fell on his face and said, Is it you, my lord, Elijah? And he answered, It is I. Go tell your lord, Behold, Elijah is here. And he said, How have I sinned that you may give your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me? As the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my Lord has not sent to seek you. And when they would say he is not here, he would take an oath of the kingdom or nation that they found that they had not found you. And now you say, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here, and as soon as I have gone from the spirit of the Lord, will carry you, and I will not know where you are. And so, when I come and tell Ahab, and he cannot find you, he will kill me, although I, your servant, have feared the Lord with my youth. Has not been told, my Lord, that I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord? How I hid a hundred men of the Lord's prophets by fifties in a cave and fed them with the bread and water? And now you say, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here, and he will kill me. And Elijah says, as the Lord of hosts lives, before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to him today. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. And when Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, it is you, you troubler of Israel. And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandment of, commandments of the Lord and followed Baals. Now therefore send me. Therefore, send and gather all of Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Now, 
That's a lot, and I, there's a lot to unpack. But I want, I want us to see in the end, in the way in which the idols of King Ahab have corrupted every area of his life. Remember, King Ahab did evil in the sight of God. He, with his whole life, he turned his heart away from God, who was to be the king of God's people. That was his position. As king of God's people, he was supposed to lead God's people towards God. And instead, what King Ahab is doing is he's turned his back from God, and he is provoking God with his own idolatry. Remember, Ahab married Jezebel, who was a foreign princess who was a worshiper of Baal and Asherah. And so she brings these worship practices of these idols into God's kingdom. And Ahab gives himself over to the worship of these gods. And Baal was supposed to be the god of fertility, the god of life, the god that was supposed to produce the the crops and allow people to live and God is showing that he's more powerful than this God by causing this God to be silent and it's interesting that we saw last week that when Elijah comes to Ahab and tells him that the famine is coming you would think that a rational person would know would understand that God's angry and God's upset and you would think that he would repent in that moment He would say, oh God, please don't withhold the rain. But instead, that's not what Ahab does. Ahab's like, okay, big deal. I got this. I, I, we, we can withstand a little, like, couple, a little, little bit of time without rain. We got this. There's plenty of water in the land. There's plenty of grass. Just look around. Everything's okay. Everything's going to be fine. And he doesn't immediately repent. But now, the famine's been going on for three years. Things are getting desperate. God brought famine and drought during this rain as an indictment of Ahab. Ahab had done evil in the sight of God. And and Ahab was completely impotent to fix this situation. So... Abraham has this, or Ahab has an opportunity and he doesn't listen and the drought comes. And still we see Ahab not looking to repent, but he's continuing to try to manage his life. The idolatry of his life corrupted everything. Instead of turning to God, he becomes more concerned about his own life and his own welfare. Even in this situation, we see that he's more concerned that he's got a plan. He's like, I see that everything's drying up. The water, the skies haven't produced water in three years. And he's like, what do I got to do? Well, I got to take care of my animals. I got I to take care of my animals. And he's got the plan. He's managing his own life on his own and his own strength and power. And so what does he do? He calls Obadiah. Remember, Obadiah was a prophet. right? Obadiah was a prophet from the Lord who is supposed to bring words from the Lord. And what is Ahab doing? He doesn't want to know what God has to say. He's not using Obadiah in the way that he was supposed to be using Obadiah. Instead, he's like, hey, Obadiah, why don't you take like this part of the land and I'll take this part of the land and let's go find some grass. Let's go find some water because we we gotta ride this out. So he's not even concerned 
in the prophet of the Lord being used as he was supposed to. He should have gone to the prophet of the Lord and said, Obadiah, what's going on? And Obadiah would have said, well, Ahab, like you're worshiping a false god. You need to stop doing that. But there was none of that. It gets even worse. Right? The corruption of this idolatry in their lives even corrupts Jezebel. Jezebel comes in, and what does she want? She wants not only, well, Ahab wants his animals to live, but she wants all the prophets of God to die. Like, she's trying to silence the voice of God. She doesn't want anyone to make them feel bad about their idolatry. For anyone to say what they're doing is wrong is an offense. So we've got to silence all the prophets of God. So she goes to the land trying to kill them. And what does God do? God allows Obadiah to take a hundred of them and hide them away. And now Elijah comes marching back into town. And Obadiah knows that Ahab's been looking for him because he wants to kill him. And so Elijah's like, hey, Obadiah, go tell him. And then they have this this discussion about I can't do it because you're going to tell me to go tell him and then you're going to take off because the spirit's going to lead you away and then I'm going to die. I'm not going to go do that. Right? The, the, the difference in Obadiah and Elijah. Right? Last week we see Elijah unequivocally just obeying God's word. And Obadiah is now here. He's like questioning. He's like, really? Give me some assurances that you're going to stay. And he does. And so we see again that Ahab is more worried about his military mules and his farms. He's not concerned about his spiritual condition. And now they come back. And Elijah and Ahab are once again connected. And Elijah's like, who are you, this troubler of Israel? Why are you here? And Elijah's like, hey, I'm not the problem. <laughs> I'm, I'm not the problem. Like, I, I've been away three years, and guess what? I've had food and water every single day. You know why? Because God's been providing for me. What do you got? And Elijah's like, I I got this. He still thinks he's got it. Like, he's got the plan. He's managing his own life. And yet, he doesn't even see that every part of his life is absolutely corrupted. It's easy for us to come to passages like this. We come to the Bible and we quickly read and it's easy for us to quickly judge and we're like, man, that guy's crazy. Why is he bowing down to a statue? Right? Why is he giving his heart and his affection and his attention over to something that was created? He watched this statue be created in this place of worship. How is it that he's giving his life over to it? Well, brothers and sisters, I want us to know that idols are very prevalent today. But many times they don't take the place or the image of a statue. I love how John John Calvin says this about the human heart. He says, the human heart is a factory of idols. The human heart has the capacity to produce more idols than the GM assembly line. We're a factory of idols. We constantly want something to worship. 
We constantly want something that we can manage. We constantly want something to give our attention and our affection to. And we're constantly just producing it one by one. The problem is not we don't have one idol. We have a plethora of idols. You're not bowing your knee to Baal, but you're bowing your knee to a ton of other things. And I'm guilty too. Idolatry is the activity of the heart's craving. It's the craving of the heart that wants something or someone more than God. That's idolatry. Have you ever wanted something more? Someone more than God? That's idolatry. Oh, we can look at at King Ahab and say, oh, King Ahab, you're missing the boat, man. Like you got the Ten Commandments. Like you got this kingdom of God. You, you, you've got the temple there. That's where God's present. How are you missing all of this? It's easy for us. But yet, what we really should do is look inside and own up to our own idolatry. Now, now a lot of things that we, we care for as idols or the way in which we, we walk in idolatry Many of the things we do are not, in and of themselves, have any type of value of goodness or badness. There, many of the things we, we care about or we make idols are actually immoral, meaning that there is not an inherent goodness or badness, but we take them and we use them and we worship them instead of worship with them. Right? I'm going to explain that because that, that I think is a big difference. Right? Like, are you a, like a fanatic over a sports team? Does your week drastically change whether your sports team wins or loses? Are are you so caught up in a human relationship that it occupies your heart, your mind, all of your time? Anytime you're alone, all your, your heart begins to wander, your mind begins to wander, you begin to think through all of these things. Now, relationships are not bad. Relationships are good. We're needy people. We're supposed to be in relationships. But relationships can be idolatry. Or maybe your idol is good looks. Maybe you're so consumed about that that you're looking about all these beauty products and all of this and you're working out trying to get the six pack and that's all that matters. Or maybe your idol is your perfect yard. That's not mine, that's for sure. I got a lot of other ones, but that's not it. But you know, there are times in which that can be an idol. Having a nice yard's not a sin. But making it your idol is. Maybe your idol's popularity. Maybe your idol's money. Maybe your idol is social media. Maybe it's politics. Maybe it's your family. You know, there's a dangerous trend going on in the world today called child worship. Where parents like almost live vicariously through their children that they never, they, they, they lift their children up so much that they become the center of their life in such a way that all that matters is their kid. Yeah, kids are important. Care for your kids, love your kids, don't worship your kids. Maybe it's pleasure, maybe it's culture, maybe your idol is possessions, maybe it's power, maybe it's approval, maybe it's success, maybe it's fame, maybe it's religion, maybe it's entertainment. I I don't know what your idols, I know what my idols are. If left alone, I, I shrink back 
And I find myself trying to find significance in them. Trying to find security in them. And yet idols completely control us. They corrupt us. Because instead of pursuing God, we are giving all of our time, all of our attention, the best parts of our life and the best parts of our day over to something that is only going to bring us death. What we worship controls us. So there's a way in which we can take the things that we like, we can take the gifts that God has given us, and there's a way in which we can worship them or we can worship God through them. Right? You like to have a, a great yard? I think having a nice yard can glorify God. I think having a relationship can glorify God. Having possessions can glorify God. There are so many different ways we can take the gifts that God has given us and make sure that he's getting the attention from it all. There's also a way in which we can take those things, hoard them to ourselves, and worship them. So let me ask you this question, and I don't, you don't answer it out loud, but answer it in your heart. What right now in your life is stealing your affection from the true God? Another way of saying that, what in your life, if it was taken away, would destroy you? Right? The answer to that, what should, if, if something was taken away and it would destroy you, the answer should be God. Right? If I didn't have God, I wouldn't have anything. If I didn't have God, I wouldn't have anything. I would have no hope. I would have no life. I would have no future. I would have no sense of security. I would have nothing. So what is it? Surrender it to the Lord. Because it's become an idol. Oh, and it's easy because we can pick up idols and we can worship them and we set them back down and then we pick them back up again and we set them back down. That's like because we're producing idols, we're the factory of idols. We constantly have to manage it. We constantly have to surrender it because you're gonna continue to produce it. And maybe the idols you're producing now are not the same idols you were producing 20 years ago. But if left alone, if left unchecked, you're gonna continue to produce idols because we don't want to really deal with the God of the universe, which we can't understand, we want to bring God down to something that we can manage. That's what idols really are. It's something that we seek, that we think that we can actually control. When in reality, it's all of our control. So we come to this place where the idols have controlled Ahab's life completely and the whole kingdom is in a wreck. And so what does Elijah do? He calls for a showdown. He tells King Ahab, he says, go bring your 450 prophets of Baal and go get the 400 prophets of, of Asherah and, and get Jezebel there. Let's get all of God's people. Let's go to Mount Carmel and let's see whose God is bigger. Let's see who's gonna show up. Is your God gonna show up or is the God of the universe going to show up? And what we're gonna see in this part of the passage is that idols have no life. Idols have no life. Let's read as we walk through this and picking up in verse 20. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? 
If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I, only am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. So let two bulls be given to us. And let them choose one bull for themselves and cut him into pieces and lay it on the wood. But put no fire to it. And I will prepare another bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is, very, it, it is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose yourself one bull and prepare it first. For you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, Oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And then they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry out aloud to your God. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. Verse 29, and as midday passed, the prophets of Baal raved on until the time of offering of the obligation, but there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. We have this big moment where all of Israel's watching. Two altars, the altar of Baal and the altar of the Lord. We'll see who's God. On this day, we will see who's God. And so what do they do? We see all of these, the prophets of Baal, they build this big, big altar and they prepare the bull and they put it on the bull and they starts at nine o'clock in the morning. They're crying out, oh, Baal, hear us. Oh, Baal, hear us. Oh, Baal, hear us. But no answer. Nine o'clock, 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock noon. They're going around this place and they're screaming and they're, they're hooting and hollering. <laughs> Elijah's just sitting back. He's like, guys, like, you know that's not how this works, right? You know this is not how it works. You, you're, you're crying out to an impotent God. You're crying out to someone who has no life, who has no ability to help you in this situation. You're living, even all of your religious fervor will not bring about the outcome that you are hoping for. It's even so funny. He sits, it's like 12 o'clock. He's like, okay, guys, are you, you done? Are, are you finished? Maybe you should cry louder. Maybe your God has stepped away. Or maybe your God's on, on in the bathroom. Right? That's what he says. Maybe he's out there relieving himself. I don't know. Cry louder. Maybe he's taken a journey and cannot hear you. So cry louder. <laughs> oh, I'd love to be Elijah. How fun would that be? Right? You're like, guys, you're doing this all wrong. It's kind of like, I, I, you guys ever seen the movie Weekend at Bernie's? Like Bernie, Bernie's dead and these, the guys are in town because they want to have a good time. So they, they carry Bernie around all weekend and, and they, they're like between him and they're like lifting his hand, doing funny things because Bernie's got no life. He's dead. But yet I think that's how some of us live with the idols in our life. We're carrying them all around, pretending that they got life 
But guess what? When the real dangers of life come, when the real needs of your life are present, they've got nothing to give you. They've got nothing. And so idols have no life. Thirdly, I want us to see that idols take our life. Look at me, verse 29. It says, And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until blood gushed out upon them. Now, what's happening is these, these prophets see that Baal is not answering. And they get themselves all worked up in this religious flurry, so much so that they're like, we've got we've to do something big so our God shows up. And so what do they start doing? They start cutting themselves. And they're like, this will show our affection. This will show our attention to our God that we've trusted in, that we've given our lives over. They're making their living off of this false God. They're providing for their own family through this false God. So if he doesn't show up, then that means everything that they built their life upon is a sham. So they're about to be exposed in the most deepest ways, and so they become desperate. This God's got to show up for me. This God's got to show up for me. So I'm going to show my devotion. I'm going to cut myself, and blood's flowing all over the place. This religious flurry. And Elijah's like, oh my goodness. Your devotion to an idol is going to kill you. That makes that idol not a good idol. Because if an idol wants you dead, how is that good? Because if the idol wants you dead, then you can no longer worship it. There's a shelf life to your worship because it ends in your death. If there was a good God, wouldn't a good God want those that worship him to be able to worship him forever? Wouldn't he be a giver of life? Well, he is. So idols take our life. What I want us to see is the crux of this text. The whole point to this point should be people's response should be repentance. Everywhere, everywhere people should respond. And, and Elijah's like, okay, guys, as God's people, you're at a place right now you have to choose. You no longer sitting on the fence. You, you, you can't be God's children and be a worshiper of Baal. You, you can't do it. So today, you decide whom you're going to follow. And what we're going to see in the further part of this passage, is that the Lord is the only God who gives life. Our Lord, the Lord, is the only God who gives life. Look at me in verse 30 of 1 Kings chapter 18. It says, Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he prepared the altar of the Lord that, it, that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of tribes of the sons of Jacob to whom the word of the Lord came saying Israel shall be your name and with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord and he made a trench around the altar as great as would contain two seas of seed and he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood and he said fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood 
And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench with water. And at the same time of the offering of the obligation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all the things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me that the people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. And then fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal, let no one, not one of them escape. And they seized them and Elijah brought them down to the book of Kishdan and slaughtered them. After the prophets of Baal failed to bring about the fire and consuming of the altar, we see Elijah steps up. Elijah's like, okay, I'm really gonna, I'm really gonna show you how big, the, you're gonna see something in just a second. It's gonna blow your mind. Because I know God. I know God. And he cares about his name. He is a God, the only God that brings life. Every other God brings death. And so it's like, okay, let's prepare the altar, build a trench around it. Let's pour some water on it. Let's pour some more water on it. Let's pour some more water on it. Then he calls out to God. And what does God do? I would love to have seen this. Like so much fire coming down out of heaven that it consumes everything. That in a moment, it's all gone. It's gone. It's destroyed. It's, it's gone. There's no doubt that the God of Israel shows up and shows himself to be the only God that gives life. Now, I know sometimes that's hard for us in our own lives to actually see and to feel. But God knows your life. God knows the difficulties that you're facing. God knows the idols that are there, the things that you're trusting into. And he's simply just saying, look to me. Look to me. Now, you may not experience, like this, the, the wrong application of this passage would be to go find a friend that is uh, an unbeliever and to say, hey, do you want to do a competition? Like, the purpose of this is not, this is not like go and do likewise. That, that, not in the same essence. It's about the heart of our trust, right? The trusting of our heart. Because even though Mount Carmel was a special day, and even though Elijah was a, was a, a prophet of the Lord that was trying to obey and do honor, God shows up in an even greater way later on in history at a different mountain with a different sacrifice. It's called Mount Calvary. For what Elijah did on that day to show that God was more powerful than this pagan God, what God was going to do later on was to show that God is more powerful than death itself. God is more powerful than sin. God is more powerful than all rebellion. God is more powerful than Satan. And so what does he do? He sends his son Jesus to be the living sacrifice for you and for me. For Jesus crawled up to the top of that mountain carrying the cross 
Jesus was hung on that cross and he was crucified on that cross. And as mighty as God showed up on Mount Carmel, God showed up even mightier when Jesus hung there. As Jesus begins to endure the wrath of God because of your sin and because of my sin, because of all of our rebellion, Jesus had to die. Because of all of our idol worship, Jesus had to take our punishment and take our pain and he endures the wrath of God and Jesus dies on that cross. And in doing so, he satisfies the wrath of God. But doesn't end there. For three days later, Jesus is raised from the dead and Jesus is alive. And in doing so, he puts death to death. He pays the penalty for all sin of all time and op- gives the opportunity for those who believe in him that those that choose to follow Jesus, to, to put their whole faith and trust into Jesus, he gives them the right to become children of God, to be forgiven of their sins, and to no longer be bound to worshiping idols. He does that mighty work. He gives us this freedom to worship. Now, I don't know where you're at today. Maybe you're here and you have been living your whole life trying to figure it all out. And you thought you had it all figured out, but every time you think it, you got it figured out, something happens and you're, you just end up messing up more and more of your life. Well, maybe your response today is to come to Jesus, knowing that he is the gift of God for your salvation. To not immediately fix all the mess that you've made, but to change your heart. You can come to him today. Trust in Jesus as your Lord and your Savior, and he will give you life. Or maybe you're here, and you have been a busy idol factory. And today, the Lord's soft words of correction have come. Maybe they've come loudly. I don't, I don't know. But there's none of us here that have fully given everything to the Lord. We easily pick up things. And so I want to encourage you today, whatever the idols are in your life, whatever's standing in the way of you experiencing real life, whatever it is that you're trusting in apart from God, lay it down. And let your eyes, your attention, and your affection once again be placed on the person of Christ. And you will receive life. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your words today. Father, we thank you that even in the depths of desperation, you are present. And even today as we look in this verse, we, verses we see that you're still active even though life seems chaotic. And even as Elijah lived in a very confusing time, you spoke to him. And you gave him words and you gave him direction of how you wanted him to live. Even though everyone else in the world around him was living a different way, he trusted you. Father, may our hearts be sensitive like that. May we desire you above all things. May we follow your instructions above all other instructions. May the affections of our heart be placed on you and that from that place we're able to love others Father I pray in these moments that as we sing and we respond if there are idols in our lives
Help us to know them, understand them, and help us to unfriend them. Help us to cast them aside. Help us to remove them from from the throne of our hearts and allow you to rule and reign where you're supposed to. For God, you've given us so much of this life to enjoy. You've given us your power. You've given us your presence. You've given us forgiveness. Would you now, God, do the work in our hearts so that we may be obedient to respond appropriately. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.